Morning, everyone. Good to be together this morning. Now, before we get stuck into uh, Revelation chapter 20 and finish, uh, we'll need Bibles. So if you've, if you've got a Bible, great. If you don't, um, this might be a chance to jump up and grab a Bible from the foyer. I'm going to go over there and get a drink of water to make it not so weird. So you do that and then have a stretch and we'll get into it. So hopefully you've got a Bible and made that, got that opportunity to get up and get going. And if you've got, uh, got an outline too, which was in your bulletin, that might be helpful to scribble down some things. Okay, well, this is it. The end is near. We face our final curtain, to quote Sinatra, that is, if you know the song. Now, when I, when I say the end... Uh, I don't mean the end of the world, although this passage does speak about it, um, but our series in Revelation. So this is the end of the series. Uh, the, the answers to the future lie in the past. We've been talking about that. We've been talking about how God unveils reality. Revelation, or the Greek word for revelation, comes from, it comes from the word, I should say, apocalypso, or apocalypse. Apocalypse just means unveiling. So this is the unveiling, uh, what we've been looking at in the past eight or nine weeks. So today, as we finish up this series, we're mostly focusing on chapter 20, that's our plan, and uh, we'll go a little bit into 21, but really I'm going to ask you to finish the series off and have a read of 21 and 22 yourself. Uh, I hope that's okay. If you've got any questions about that, of course, come and talk to me and I'd love to talk to you about it. How about we pray and ask God to help us understand his word today. Father, we, do, we thank you so much for your uh, goodness and kindness to us. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that you're a God who speaks. And uh, so, Lord, we ask you that you, we would listen to your voice as we read your word today and that we would put your words into practice. Help me to be clear and help us to understand uh, what your word is saying. Amen. So th there are realities of life which loom up and cast a shadow over your whole existence at, any given, at, at a given point in time. These realities, they swallow you up. You know, they, um, we know they're coming, these type of realities, and so we act accordingly, or at least we should, shouldn't we? Perhaps the HSC is one of those realities. Now, the HSC is happening in a few weeks' time. Uh, I imagine their preparations have already begun, you would think, wouldn't you? Or maybe they're going by my motto, and I did my HSC, is it's amazing how much you can get done the night before. <laughs> it, it is amazing, actually. Wes, don't listen, please. Um, no, not quite that bad, but anyway. Uh, perhaps another example of this type of reality is your wedding. That's a good thing. It sort of consumes you, and that's a good You're thinking about it and so on. That's, that's a good thing. Or pregnancy. I suppose it's not as if the baby pops out and you say to your wife, where'd that come from? That, that's unlikely. Uh, the time will come when these events, like the, these or others, will determine how long you sleep, what you eat, uh, your, how you talk, think, dream, what you dream about. You might wake up in a cold sweat. Uh, that could be any one of those examples that I've given already. Um, and for some people, death is another example of a reality of life which overshadows, especially for those of us who are a little bit older, they're the group of people who are saying goodbye to friends at, at funerals 
and, and for some people that happens much more often than, than obviously than they'd like. For older people, death is more vividly real to them than those who are younger. But if you're young, of course, well, we really never know when our time is up, do we? So we shouldn't just think it's for older people. Well, over the last eight or nine weeks, and I hope you've got a sense of, I hope you've got a sense of what it was like to live as a Christian in the first century AD. John's writing in around 90 AD, and he's looking back, and obviously at the time as well. What's it like to live under the Caesar? What was it like to live as part of this imperial cult where you're forced to worship the Caesar, bow down to him? The, the, the death and beating of Christians, families and friends that you'd know, persecution of Christians as they stood up for the sake of Jesus, and they refused to conform. What was, what was it like to live in that time? The early Christians were actually called atheists. I don't know if you knew that. Um, they were called atheists because they didn't believe in, any, didn't believe in the gods. Uh, they refused to conform to the gods. So what did these Christians need to hear as they faced the reality of their future? Now, just like that, they, they needed to, to hear, they needed to, to see reality clearly, ultimate reality, the, the veil lifted. The book of Revelation, this letter to these seven churches, gave those persecuted Christians a glimpse of the ultimate realities so they would see the solid realities which once seen will overshadow and consume their existence. Now today, we we come to a bit of a controversial passage actually. Uh, We're going to spend most of our time in Revelation chapter 20. And some say it's the most controversial passage. Actually, people say the Bible itself is a controversial book, the most controversial book ever written. So what we've got here, especially as we start in in verses 1 to 3, is the most controversial paragraph in the most controversial chapter in the most controversial of books in the Bible in possibly the most controversial book, and that is the Bible. There you go. How about that? Try saying that a few times. Um, That's what we've got in front of us. But before we have a good look at this chapter, we need to remind ourselves again, and perhaps for the last time, uh, that Revelation is full of pictures. And remember, they're abstract pictures. They're not photographs, are they? They're not photographs. They're abstract pictures. They're pictures of realities, important and great realities, awesome realities, but that are as real as any reality, but they're portrayed as pictures. We've got to keep remembering that. All right. What will also help this morning is remembering the context of not only what comes immediately before chapter 20, as we looked at last week, but the rest of Revelation itself. So already Revelation has taught us these things. Uh, See if you can remember this. A bit of a a look back, I suppose. That persecution is part of the Christian's life. That God is sovereign. That Christ is king and rules now. These things should all ring a bell. Uh, that all things culminate in Jesus, that that really means that God will fulfill all his purposes in Jesus, that Satan is a formidable uh, but defeated foe, and that Christians will be preserved by God, that justice will be served, and that Jesus is coming soon. So there's some of the things we've learnt so far. It's true, isn't it? So let's not forget those as we look at this slightly difficult passage. And now in terms of the immediate context, as we pick things up again in chapter 20, well, John is simply continuing on. He's not changing scenes. The scene continues. And we don't want to be distracted, by the way, 
by the Bible headings. The Bible headings are put in your Bibles by translators, and usually they're very helpful. Uh, but on this occasion, it may not be that helpful because the scene continues. So the scene of Satan being defeated. The, the rider on the white horse has appeared. His name is Faithful and True. It's not hard to work out who that rider is. It's Jesus, of course. Jesus, Faithful and True. Babylon falls. Remember what Babylon is from last week. Uh, evil is defeated fully and finally. And so this scene just continues on into chapter 20. And here is John seeing something else, another vision as part of that scene. So there's a number of pictures. I've got in your notes there's four pictures. You could argue there's five, but the fifth comes in chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. But let's look at this, these uh, four pictures together. Picture number one, uh, Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Okay, how about that? There's a scene, isn't it? So let's try to think for a minute. Uh, let's, well, let's try to keep it simple, just at least to start with. What does this picture mean? What do we see? So what do we see? Well, we see an angel, right? We see an angel who has a great chain and the devil being bound by this great chain for a thousand years. So that's pretty clear, isn't it? We see that. So here's a picture of the devil being put out of action. Now, why is he being put out of action? Well, we can see it there in, in uh, verse 3. He's been put out of action to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. Now, here's the controversial bit. Is that a picture of something that is going to happen in the future, or is it a picture of something that has already happened in the past? Important question. Uh, do we learn that one day Satan will be put out of action, or do we learn that Satan has already been put out of action? That's our important question we've got to answer. Now, some say it's a future event. One day Satan will be bound, and they say that happens when Christ returns. Now, it must be a future picture, they say, because look around us. There's so much evil going on. Satan's clearly very active. Well, fair enough. Uh, but before we accept that very reasonable view, which I think is wrong, um, I want to remind us of three incidences in the life of Jesus. So we're going to cast our eyes back to Jesus' teaching and what he said about why he came when he came to the earth. And the first one is the reading that Sharon read to us earlier. So Mark chapter, chapter 3, you can look them up, or I've got them up there as well. Mark chapter 3 verse 20 is our focus, but we'll have a look at um, verse 22. Or 22, I should say. We'll start there. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter the strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Now, do you see what Jesus is saying about why he came? 
and his response to the, the, the Pharisees. See what Jesus said he came to do to Satan. Jesus came into the world, he says, to bind up Satan, to tie him up so he can plunder his house, so he can come and rescue people, release them from Satan's grasp in their lives, rob Satan of his possessions. That's why Jesus came. Let's look at another example. This one we didn't read before. It's Luke chapter 10, and the focus is verse 17, but I'll give you a bit more context as well. So this is the part, part in Luke where Jesus has sent out 70 gospel workers, uh, gospel preachers, and they come back really excited. Um, uh, God's moved in amongst the people. Uh, people have become Christians. They're, they're, they're full of great stories. They're pumped. Anyway, so verse 17, the 72 returned with joy. And said, Lord, to Jesus, even the demons submit to us in your name. Verse 18, he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That is, from the heights, from the lofty power. That's the idea. It's a, it's a lowercase h. I saw Satan fall like lightning from the heights of power, from the heavens. Jesus goes on to explain that he explained his authority over Satan and that that is given to these evangelists as they preach the gospel. So Satan falling from heaven when the gospel is effectively proclaimed. What about John 12 verse 31? Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, Jesus says will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Note that Satan, is being, uh, Satan being driven out is associated with Jesus being lifted up. And we know what that means because it's explained in the next verse, in verse 33, that's his death on the cross, him being lifted up and drawing people to himself. So what do we learn with these passages? Well, when Jesus came in the first place, and when his message is proclaimed, Satan falls, Satan was bound, Satan was cast out. Now that's the picture of Revelation 20 verses 1 to 3. That's the great reality for us to see and for us to know this morning. When Jesus died for you and me on the cross, Satan was driven out. He was put out of action. By Jesus' life, death, resurrection and ascension, Satan is bound. He cannot go around deceiving the nations anymore so that they cannot know Jesus. He cannot stop the gospel from going out. He's bound. He cannot stop people from coming to Christ. He's bound by the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Okay, well let's get to this a thousand years uh, business. The millennium, as theologians call it. And yes, it's a little controversial. Um, it's probably the most controversial sentence in the most controversial passage in the most controversial... No, you've got the idea. Um, so, it, look, if you want to know a bit more about this, um, there's, if you have one of those NIV study Bibles, um, they're, they're reasonably useful. Don't forget, though, the, in those study Bibles, it's the text of the Bible, that's the Bible. The bit underneath, that's just the notes of some commentators. The, the bit you read first is the Bible bit, and then if you want to, you can read the bit at the bottom. Now, in the introduction to Revelation, one of those, those NIV study Bibles has a pretty good uh, explanation of, of the different views of the millennium. Anyway, so let's have a look at what the text says in front of us here. Again, they're pictures. Don't forget they're pictures and they're symbols. 
So the thousand years, like all the other numbers in Revelation, is just a symbol. Why would we think for a minute, for example, that the chain here is a really big metal chain physically around the devil? No, of course not. The chain, is, the chain represents, it's a picture of the reality of Satan being bound and put out of action. So the chain is. So the, the thousand years then, is not, it's not really about time at all. It's a way of portraying Satan being put out of action in a thorough and effective way, but not destroyed altogether. That's the best way, I think, to think about it. So that's picture one. Now, the devil being put out of action, thanks to Jesus, no longer does the devil have free, a free hand in deceiving the nations, doing whatever he wants. If friends, that means that if the devil's been put out of action... We do not need to fear him, we, nor do we need to give him any attention. And he loves the attention. He loves the focus. Now, we're always told to focus on the victor, and that's Jesus, the one who has defeated the devil. Fix your eyes on him. That's who we're told to focus on. Okay, let's go to um, picture number two. Picture number two, this is verses four to six. Verse 4, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. Now, it's a little bit more complicated, this one. Um, so we've got thrones. It's very important, actually. We've got souls living and reigning with Christ for this thousand years period again. Or this symbol. We need to ask the question, what does this picture mean? Uh, is it about the future, as some say? Uh, I don't think so. Let's think for a moment about these thrones. <coughs> have you ever noticed, as we've read through Revelation in the past eight or nine weeks, have you noticed that thrones in Revelation are always in heaven? They're always in heaven, these thrones. So these verses here in verses four to six, we have thrones again. Here we've got a picture of heaven. We've got a picture of heaven now as Satan is bound. That's the context we come to. So Christians in heaven now with Christ. And who do we see? Well, we see Jesus, verse 4. We also see those who came to life, those who died in Christ. It's a bit gruesome, isn't it? They're beheaded. But that's what a lot of the Christians were beheaded for following Jesus, um, under Nero or Domitian in those days. Or China, Nigeria, Pakistan, the list goes on today. But of course, they're not defeated, are they? No, they're reigning with Christ. It, it, it's hard to imagine the despair of these Christians in the first century as, as their mates from church were being captured, being killed, being crucified, being beheaded, and their heads were being and their bodies were being uh, uh, publicly displayed. Churches halving overnight. Gone, just like that because there's been some raid or something like that, or that's a, that's a term we might use. 
by all intents and purposes, these Christian martyrs, they look like the losers, don't they? They look like the losers. And Christians look like the losers. But that's not the reality. The reality is that they, they reign with Jesus now. They're with Jesus now, reigning with him. They're not defeated at all by the emperor, are they? Now, if you look around this world, it may not look like Jesus is reigning. It doesn't really look like that, does it? But I don't think we're supposed to look like that at this world. We're supposed to see the reality, the truth of what is ultimately going on right now, and that is that Jesus is reigning from heaven and his people are with him. Now, here on earth, Christians suffer and die, but the ultimate reality is that Christians live and reign with Christ in heaven. They're, they're part of the first resurrection, that's verse 6, Christians who die in Christ. And notice too that it's souls, not bodies. That's because when Christ returns, then our bodies are raised like Jesus' body was raised physically. Uh, that's the end of the thousand years, that I, I take it, and that will come back, we'll come back to that in a minute. We can say, though, that regarding those thousand years, that it's the same picture of verses 1 to 3, emphasising powerful, lasting reality, but not eternal yet. And note too in verse 5 that the rest of the dead, uh, those who don't know Jesus, are not involved with this at all. That's all we get about that question. Okay, picture number 3. Let's move on to picture number 3. So verses 7 to 10. Let's try to imagine this, picture this. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever. And ever. That's a pretty dramatic picture, isn't it? <laughs> There's no doubt about that. So the thousand years have come to an end. We read here, uh, Satan's chain is loosened, he's released, he's, the lid is unlocked from the abyss, he's back into action. A huge army marches on God's people, but there's no fight. There's no fight. It's over as quick as it started, and the devil is put out of action forever and finally. Now what does this picture mean? Again, we've got to be careful with symbolic pictures. Let's not not try to press too much out of them that's just not there. Uh, Let's be careful so that we don't uh, try to look for one thing and we can't back it up from anywhere else in the Bible. The the picture here is a picture of the thousand-year period that comes to an end. And notice, too, that at this point, there is a time element. There is a time element because it comes to an end. That is the end of the thousand-year period that Satan is released to go and deceive, but it's short-lived. It ends quickly. Again, though this, again, this, uh, it tells us the reality of pictures one and two, doesn't it? That right now Satan is really and truly bound and put out of action because we haven't come to the end yet. We haven't come there yet. But right now he is bound and put out of action. He's put out of action from deceiving the nations so that they cannot know Jesus. Satan has been able to stop the spread of the gospel to the nations. Uh, sorry, Satan has not been able to stop the spread of the gospel to the nations. So he's still active. He's like, right now he's like a wild dog on a leash tied to a tree, isn't he? 
That's not a bad image, I think, to, to try to picture of Satan. Although, if you pat the dog, you're going to get bitten, aren't you? So he's not completely inactive. With what power he has, he's working his hardest to deceive the nations and keep them from believing Jesus. You see, I think picture three, as Satan gathers people to oppose God uh, at Gog and, or Gog and Magog is mentioned, um, that represents an evil place with an evil leader. Um, read Ezekiel 38 if you've got a good three or four days to try to understand it. Come back to me when you do and tell me what it means. Um, but Satan's... As, as, as Satan gathers people to, to oppose God, what we see is Satan working to the extent that he is not bound. But in the end, Satan and all those who follow him, we see this in verse 10, uh, the end is, is clear and, and this ought to shake you because Satan and all those who follow him will, will be finally and completely overthrown. So friends, when you, when you find that Satan is seeking to get you, and he will, when, when you find that Satan is seeking to entice you to follow him, and he'll try, don't forget what we read here, especially verse 10. Don't forget this reality, that Satan is a loser. <laughs> All right, picture four. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If, anyone names, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So, another difficult picture, isn't it? Here's a picture of judgment. Here's a picture of ultimate reality. Behind all human life stands this reality. Judgment. When we stand before God. I think this has got to be the most important of all the four pictures, isn't it? Got to be. And it's a picture we all must see. Make sure you see it, won't you? Now, make sure you see it. Notice there's nothing and no one to challenge or, questions or question God's supremacy. No one. Earth and sky flee from his presence. In verse 12, the dead, small and great, rich and poor, it doesn't matter, it makes no difference. All stand before the throne. There's no choice. There's no getting out of it. Can't worm a way out of this one. All people, everywhere, whoever they are, must stand before that throne. It's the most certain fact of life. There's no escape. Each of us will stand before, the God, the, before God the judge. And the books are opened. 
Now again, it's a symbol, isn't it? I don't think there's really books flipped through the pages. But you see the symbol. The books are open. It's a record of all the deeds, the thoughts, words spoken. And each person is judged justly. And there's another book, and there's two books. The Book of Life is the other book. And it contains the names of Christ's own people. So these are the people who have put their trust in him. These are the people who have been forgiven. The people who have been washed by Jesus' blood, so to speak. And using that terminology we've come to understand from Revelation. Those who can look forward to the new Jerusalem. A new heavens and a new earth that we read from Isaiah 65 and we read again in Revelation 21. On that day when the books are opened, the books that contain everything you've ever done, ever thought, every word spoken, and you're being judged by the perfect and holy God, there is one question that matters. One question. Is your name written in the book of life? That's the question that matters. Is your name written in the book of life? And if not, well, then you can see what happens, can't you? This morning, we've got, to, we've got to see the great reality that lies in the future. So are you sure about your future with God? Are you sure about your future with God? If you died tonight, <laughs> face judgment with God, where would you go? What would the book say? That's the only question that matters. Is your name written in the book of life? Make sure your name is written in the book that matters. It's, a, it's, it's stupidity, isn't it, to go through life and ignore the certain events that lie in the future, pretending that they're not there and will not come. It's silly, isn't it? That's the foolishness of the human race. It's what it is. To ignore events that lie in the future, whether it's exams or a pregnancy or death. We cannot live in this world and say it will not come. It will not happen to me. That's wrong. It will happen to every one of us. We will stand before that, before that throne and the books will be opened. You may not be sure you are one of Christ's people this morning. I think a lot of us probably are, which is great, obviously. But if you're not sure, I hope today you'll make sure. You'll pause and you'll accept Jesus' wonderful invitation that you'll read about this week when you do your homework and read chapter 22. 22 verse 17 says, take, Jesus invites us to take the free gift of the water of life. See, there really are only two ways to live. Uh, just as there are two books, Jesus invites us to come to him the living way, not the way of death, but the way of life. I'm going to pray for us. Uh, I'm not going to have a question time today because some of today is very uh, personal. Um, but what I will do after the service, uh, I'm just going to hang around the front, sit around here for a while and... Um, if anyone wants to come and talk to me about anything that we've looked at today or just a question from the passage, um, come and chat. That'd be great. How about I pray? Uh, Father, we thank you, God, that you are sovereign and God over all. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you reign. We thank you for those Christians who have died 
and been faithful to you. We thank you, Lord, that they reign now with you. Lord, we look forward to the day as Revelation finishes, of the day when you return. And Lord, yes, may we be ready for that day. Uh, may we be ready for the day when the books are opened. Lord, we, uh, we pray today if, if there are any of us here this morning who don't, aren't quite ready and not sure, we pray that we would take that time to pray to you, to give our lives to you, and to follow you, Lord Jesus. Lord, thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. Amen.